Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, welcome back. Oh, it's a, such a nice reunion. It is. Uh, I must have been in the same room Definitely. with you last week. It wasn't quite the same. Definitely. Talking to you across the English Channel. I know, I know. As Dominic Grant recently said, it's, you know, shorter distance than he thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's enough about Brexit. Yeah. I'm just going to apologise. I'm a little horse. You are a little today. horse. I'm really pleased that you didn't make a dad joke about me being a little horse. No, I, I, I thought that I think it'd be in. further from my mind. Right. Yeah, so Hello, uh, I'm Mr. Ed. <laughs> do you remember this? Mr. Ed, Ed talking horse. Yeah. You know what they used I always to... used to have a lot of empathy with that because of Mr. Ed. Yeah. Hello, I'm Mr. Ed. Did people ever sort of taunt you with it at school? No, I think it was no. What wasn't great about Mr. Ed is the way they'd do it is they would rub peanut butter into the horse's gums and then the horse would be sort of moving its mouth is trying to get the peanut butter off its gums and that was how they were able to is make it serious? look like, had, uh, like the horse was talking. I mean, the thing is that this is why you are such an invaluable commodity to the country <laughs> because you know these you know, fundamentally important piece of information that are going to shape our future. Yeah, very, very little else. Very little else apart from that Mr. Ed fact. What should we talk about what we're going to talk about this week? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very excited. You're ex- very excited about I it. I am. Um, it's a slightly different episode yeah. uh, than usual. You described because- it like a sort of a soap going on holiday. Yeah, you know, when a sitcom or a soap, they do a special episode where they go on holiday. It's a bit like... It's like EastEnders goes to Malaga or something. Yeah, we're going slightly yeah. off-piste. Are you the Dot Cotton of this episode? <laughs> Are you the Ethel? Yes. We've been lucky enough to get some time with one of the sort of, um, most important and most famous thinkers Well, indeed, you, in you've the had world. that for the last 60 episodes. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, sorry, go on. Uh, we're t- we've got uh, author and historian Yuval Noah Harari, who his huge book was Sapiens, I think three or four years ago, and it was one of these books that sold in the millions, and it was a history of of mankind's condensed into five hundred pages and some big ideas uh, in it, and you know it was 
endorsed by everybody from Barack Obama downwards. Then he followed that up with a book called Homo Deus, which was about the direction we're heading in, perhaps in the next century. And there's a new book, which is a collection uh, largely of essays and bits of writing that he's had published in different places. It's called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. We'll be just sort of talking to him about those lessons, but just sort of broadly where the causes for optimism are in humanity. As is our theme. Yes. Because even when we're dot, cotton and ethyl (laughs) on holiday, we keep the theme. That's right. What's your reason to be cheerful? I was working at Radio 2 this week. I wasn't broadcasting from London, I was broadcasting from Salford. I checked into the Holiday Inn and the receptionist said, congratulations, you've been selected as guest of the day. What? Yes. And they said, uh, we've upgraded your room. I mean, as far as I could tell, it was exactly the same room, but on a slightly higher floor. And uh, I got a little voucher, which entitled me to a free hot beverage or soft drink at the bar. I mean, that's big. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the reason to be cheerful, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't think these things are random. I think they sort of picked somebody who's deserving. Well, somebody told me that Ollie Murs was staying in the same hotel that night because he was on the BBC breakfast show the next morning. So they picked me over Ollie Murs. I mean, that's 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 big. Yeah, what's yours? Uh, so my reason to be cheerful is a bit of a hangover from Paris is that Justine and I did a, had a cooking lesson. Now, I need to explain to the reason to be cheerful uh, listener that you're, you're not, I don't think, somebody who considers themselves much of a cook. I'm sorry. This is what you... I mean, this is, is this like payback for the leisure centre? This is what you said to no, me. No, I never said that to you. I could have sworn you told me you weren't much of a cook. And, and, then and also was... this sort of faux naive way of sort of insulting me. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, Frank, no, you know, okay, I is, know the leisure the, centre thing no, was like a deep thing scar. I, you, you see improper motives and hidden agendas in other people when they're not there because you have them yourself. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway. What in relation to the Leisure Centre? Yeah, By the way, what is, the, what is the conclusion of the Leisure Centre story? It's, it's, it's locked box. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, this cookery course then. I, well, I'm not going to tell you now. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Yuval Noah Harari's new book is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It's a collection of his writing and we're thrilled to have him here with us today. Hello. Hello, it's good to be here. Uh, The title of the podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. Hmm. Do you consider yourself an optimist? Um, I try to be a realist and to, as far as possible, uh, see things as they are. And there are always things to be cheerful about. Uh, there are also, also always things to be not so cheerful about. Uh, take your pick. You know? Okay. Well, I thought that we, we will choose optimism today. I thought we could talk through uh, some of the things you cover in these writings. And we can sort of talk around them. And, and we can try and dig out the optimism mm-hmm. therein. And I thought we could start with automation. And okay. the future of work. So we've talked about UBI. Our first episode of this uh, show was about UBI. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about UBI? I think the main problems with universal basic income is that it's very unclear what universal is and what basic is. Um, most people that talk about universal basic income, they actually mean national basic income. 
they have this vision of saying in, in the US, where it is particularly popular in Silicon Valley, that, okay, the government will raise taxes on the Facebook and Google and Apple in California and use the money to provide basic income to unemployed coal miners in Pennsylvania or to unemployed taxi drivers in New York. Uh, the real problem is that the people are most likely to be, to be uh, uh, hurt by the automation revolution will not live in Pennsylvania or New York. They will live in Honduras or Bangladesh. And do you really think that the U.S. government will raise taxes in California to pay benefits to people in Bangladesh? Uh, if you believe that, you can believe anything. <laughs> so uh, so the, the, the first question, I mean, and it's, it's crucial to realize that the... We need to understand the automation revolution on a global level, not on a national level, because we have built a global economy over the last few generations uh, in which people all over the world depend on one another. And the automation revolution might unravel the global uh, uh, trade network, uh, hurting the weakest links the most. For example, a lot of production might actually come back to countries like the U.S., like Britain, like Germany, because if you rely more and more on robots and computers, then the, the cost of labor doesn't mean anything. And if you move back production to the U.K. from Bangladesh, then you save all the costs of transport and, 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 and whatever. And then the big question is, what do the people in Bangladesh do? And there will be new jobs uh, even after the automation revolution or during the automation revolution, but most of them will demand new skills. The UK government will probably have the ability to educate and retrain the workforce for the new job market. But the government of Bangladesh or of Honduras, it's far less likely they will be able to do it. So the worst problems will be in countries like Honduras, and uh, unless universal basic income is really universal, meaning global, it doesn't solve this problem. The other thing about UBI is what does basic mean? Universal basic income. What is basic? Now, biologically, the only thing you need to give humans to keep them alive is about 3,000 3, calories a day. If you add some shelter and a bit of, of, of clothing to keep them warm, maybe 5,000 calories a day of energy. But we've gone way, way beyond that. Today, we think that education is basic for, for, for human welfare, that healthcare is basic, that uh, access to the internet is basic. So would you finance all that also with UBI? And who decides what is basic? If you have some new wonder treatments that can extend your life to 130, or that you can re-engineer your babies to be superhumans, Will this be a basic human need that we need to finance for everybody? Or will this be just the preserve of a new small elite? And we need to remember that in, in, in a situation uh, uh, that, that UBI is, is supposed to take care of, the people who don't work, they can't get anything besides UBI, UBI if they don't work. So whatever the government or whatever decides is, is basic, they get that. But if something is considered not basic, like these new wonder medical treatments, they have no way to achieve it. So you're, you might see a situation with far greater inequality than, than ever before and far greater anger than ever before. So where does that take you? I mean, if that is analysis is right and it's very compelling, 
and it doesn't necessarily take you to UBI. Where does it mm-hmm. take you? you? You've talked about that we're gonna the danger is an elite, and I think you call it a useless class. Is yes. that right? I mean, where, where, what's what's the answer then? I know that's a hard question. Yeah, I mean, one one answer, not yes. the answer, but one answer to to begin with is the new economy, the, the economy of AI and robotics and all that. It's based above all else on control of data. Data is the most important asset. The problem is that we have no experience with the regulation of, of this kind of data. You know, we have thousands of years of experience regulating the ownership of land. And we can conceptualize what it means to own land. There is a piece of, there is a field, I build a fence around it, there is a gate, I stand at the gate, this field is mine, I decide who comes in, who goes out. And if somebody comes and says, no, it's not fair that only one person has all the land, so okay, let's divide the field into 100 small plots and give each individual a plot. We can conceptualize it. Over the last 200 years, we faced the new problem of regulating the ownership of machinery. How do you do that? And we had all kinds of experiments and false starts, but eventually we also understood how to regulate the ownership of machinery in factories. And what does it mean for me to own a small piece of General Motors, for example? We understand how to do it. But with ownership of data, we have no idea, almost no idea, especially because it's a very different thing from ownership of land. Data, like my personal data, let's go say to to, to the deepest level, DNA, my DNA, my medical record, the most personal thing about me, my body, it's an immense treasure of data. Who owns this? The data about my DNA and my medical history. Now, I can, you know, you can have a printout of your DNA and your medical record. It doesn't mean you own it because there can be a million copies of this data in Silicon Valley or in Beijing or in Brussels or in London. Um, And also you can transfer this at the speed of light. It's not like a field which is just in, in, in one place. So just starting to conceptualize, how do I really establish ownership of my DNA sequence. And how to, there are cases when I want to share my data like with my doctor. There are cases when somebody wants my data and I'm not sure whether I want to give it. For example, a potential employer that says, hey, don't send me your CV, I don't care about that, send me your your DNA. I I, I want my algorithms to go over your DNA. Um, am, Am I obliged to do it? If, if I say, no, I'm not sharing my DNA records with you, my medical records with you, and the potential employer says, okay, so I don't hire you, is this legal? Or can I claim that this is discrimination? And if they find something they don't like in my DNA and they don't hire me because of that, is this legal? Um, there are so many questions about these things that we have barely began to, to scratch the surface. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because there was a recent article in the New York Times which... Um says that for somebody who's quite critical of Silicon Valley, they fate you. They, they, you know, <laughs> you're a bit you, of a hero. You're, you're the hero, yeah. you know, mm. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, you know. Mm. What, what, and you say, and you, I think you said in this article in the New York Times that you were slightly anxious about yeah. this, that maybe they hadn't understood your message. I mean, what, 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 what do you make of it then? Well, I haven't met all of them sure. in, in Silicon Valley, and I'm not a sociologist of, of Silicon Valley. They all Valley. want to meet you, my, though. My, my personal impression 
is that most of them are really concerned about the impact and implications they are, they are having. Most of them have really no background in things like politics, uh, sociology, philosophy. So um, they're engineers, most of them. And they realize that they are kind of releasing demons uh, with very little understanding yeah. of the consequences. And many of them are just worried. Now, personally, I think that the really big... In, in Silicon Valley itself, the big danger is not kind of evil conspiracies. It's more naivety or uh, the inability mm. to understand the full consequences mm. of what they are doing. And at least looking so far at what is happening, the really big danger is not in Silicon Valley, but in what people in other places are doing with the new tools and technologies that Silicon Valley is producing. And if you think, for example, about the latest scandal with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, it's a good example. Because one of the lessons of this scandal is that even though Facebook had the technology to decide the 2016 elections, if there was some evil conspiracy in Facebook headquarters, like they, they gathered the whatever, the, the chief brains, and said, let's, let's manipulate the elections, they could do it. But apparently, they didn't. There was some outside... Uh, um, company, organization, I'm not sure what's working in the service of nobody's perfectly sure who, uh, that utilize the tools, yeah, the, the, the tools of Facebook to manipulate the elections. And Facebook was so naive about it, <clears throat> sorry, about it, its own power that it didn't realize what is happening. So, uh, at least in this case, the impression is that Facebook was guilty of extreme naivety and not of uh, an evil conspiracy. And this can happen again on a much larger scale. With, again, you, know, you, have all, you have some of the brightest people in the world that for 20 years um, developed methods of how to grab people's attention and make them click on ads or watch funny cat videos. And then you get people in other places, like all kinds of autocrats, who take over these tools and use them not in order to make us watch funny cat videos, but to make us watch all kinds of terrible videos that, that spread hatred and, and, and fear and, and, and whatever. Fake news was actually one of the areas I was going to ask you to find some optimism. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot to be pessimistic about there. Yeah. But you, um, you talk about how fictions are actually an important part of civilization and mm -hmm. we've been convincing ourselves of things that aren't true for a long time yeah there is, there is nothing new about fake news and um things were much much if, if you want some optimistic uh, perspective things was far far worse in the past fake news didn't begin with facebook and twitter and all that if you go back to a small medieval town so there is no facebook no internet no smartphones but there is fake news uh, one day you walk on the street and a neighbor comes along and tells you, hey, do you know this old weird lady who lives by herself near the forest? I just saw her flying on a broomstick. <laughs> right. And within two hours, you would have a raging mob with torches and pitchforks ready to burn this poor old woman to, to death. And this is complete fake news. Um, and in the 20th century we saw enormous propaganda machines in places like the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, which spread fake news 
with um, ruthlessness and efficiency that far surpasses anything we see today, so far. The, the difference between what's happening now and what happened in the days of Stalin or Hitler is that 100 years ago, 70 years ago, propaganda was kind of um, uh, a statistical uh, art. You, when Hitler gave a speech on the radio, he aimed for the lowest common denominator. Uh, he couldn't give a different speech to each German, to each individual. Now what we are getting with the new technology is the ability to manipulate individuals based on intimate knowledge of your own biases. So to take a, a, a real example of what is happening in many countries in the world, let's say there is a debate about immigration. So somebody who wants to polarize society and really to prevent having any kind of constructive debate, uh, he knows that maybe you already have some bias against immigrants. Uh, so he will show you, or they will show you, or the bots will show you, a fake news story about a gang of immigrants raping local women. And because you already have the bias, you will much more easily believe the story. Uh, your neighbor may be thinking that actually immigration is a good idea, but she has a different bias. She thinks that anybody who opposes immigration must be a fascist or a racist. So the same people will show her a very different fake news story, maybe a fake news story about a gang of local neo-Nazis killing immigrants. And she believes it because it, it again it plays up to her bias. And, and then and you what's meet their her. agenda in, in in that then if uh, if they're sort of encouraging well, both different people. people. It's probably different people showing. No, the... you've all said the same people, the same bots would be behind the two things. Yes, th th that's the point. I mean, it's not that somebody's against immigration, so he tries to convince everybody to be against. No, the the aim is to polarize society. So to polarize society, you don't show the same, the same fake news story to everybody because it won't, it won't convince everybody. You tailor the propaganda to the individual. And so those who already have a bias against immigrants, they will go to one extreme. Those who already have a bias pro-immigration, they will go to the other extreme. And then when you meet your neighbor in the elevator, you, you, there is no way you can have a meaningful discussion when, when each of you believes these fake stories. Right. Can I ask you, but in sort of in this context, because I think you've written about this, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that one of the most important human characteristics is the capacity for empathy. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that this is the danger of this, these circles is they they sort of, if empathy is the ability to walk in the shoes of others, it, they decrease at least our practice of empathy. Mm -hmm. What can we do about this? Hmm. Well, there are two things to do, one on the kind of the individual level and one on the collective level. On the individual level, you know, it's the oldest advice in the book, but we need to get to know ourselves better, especially our weaknesses and biases, because these are the weapons that are used to polarize society. It's very difficult to create hatred or fear out of nothing. So again, the system is to find something that you already hate, to some extent, mm. or something you already fear, and then amplify it. Your own weaknesses are the weapon. If you already have a bias against a group, if you already think that anybody who opposes immigration is a fascist, 
So you should be extra careful about the kinds of stories that latch onto that and amplify it. Uh, so this is what you can do on the individual level. On the collective level, I think the very important thing is to change the kind of model of the news market. At present, the dominant model is exciting news that cost you nothing in exchange for your attention. And in this kind of model, the big battle is actually for your attention. And the best way to grab your attention is to press your emotional buttons. Nothing grabs attention like fear and hatred and greed. A much better and more, but more difficult model could be um, news that maybe cost you a lot of money, but don't abuse your attention. And, the, uh, and, and, and currently, this is definitely not... The, the dominant public broadcast, you know, public broadcasters that don't have a political agenda, um, like the BBC. If if you can, can really convince people that they, if if you can really make it happen that they don't have an agenda. But again, I think that part of the problem is that people got used to the, to the situation when news and information are for free, which is very strange because people are used to paying for almost everything. You know, you want good food, you pay for it. You want good clothes, you pay for it. But you want good information or, or, or useful information. No, 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 I'm not going to pay for it. This should be free. And this is very, very strange. I mean, to some extent, information and your attention are the most important asset today. And it would be much better if people began to place a much higher value. I mean, I'll give a different, a different example. Think that, say, a billionaire comes to you and tell you, look, I'll pay you a hundred pounds a month. In exchange, you allow me to brainwash you for <laughs> half an hour every day and implant in your mind any political or commercial ideas I want. Most people will say, absolutely not. You're crazy. I want to take it. So the billionaire Jeff, comes... would you say that? <laughs> I mean, I've got my price. Not for 100 But then the billionaire comes with a, with a slightly different version of the deal. He says, I won't charge you anything, and in exchange, you will let me brainwash you for half an hour a day. And suddenly people say, yes, do it. Because a lot, you know, of the, the, you know, the, 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 the free newspapers people get in all kinds of places today. Yeah. What is it? I mean, you sit and you read it. You allow somebody access to your mind for maybe 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day to shape your views about yeah. politics, about economics, yeah. and at least pay me to, 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 to brainwash me. But no, it's free. Where it's does free. that leave podcasting? <laughs> yeah, are we brainwashing? Is that what we're doing now? I think we're part of the problem on this analysis. Um, some, something else I was trying to explain this to Ed before, but I was doing a horrible job of it, and I know you'll do a lot better job. Talking about democracy and how data can mm. change that beyond fake news, but in terms of how we vote and actually whether we vote in, in elections. Mm -hmm. We've had a few issues in this country, you may have noticed. <laughs> uh, we had this referendum, and we're, spe we're speaking on the day I, of the... On the hour. Of, uh, yeah, the hour of the Brexit, the latest Brexit debacle on the Wednesday. So, yes. Yeah. Um, Referendums well, don't solve much as so the, far. The, the entire democratic system is based on the idea of uh, humans making decisions out of their free will, and the idea that the individual knows best, the voter knows best, the customer is always right, listen to yourself, follow your heart, all these slogans. This is the basis. 
But what happens if uh, you have an external system, an external algorithm that knows you better than you know yourself and can therefore make more and more decisions on your behalf? Um, 20 years ago, this sounded like science fiction. But now we are reaching the point when we, you have enough data, enough computing power, enough understanding of biology that maybe, yes, we can create external systems that know people better than they know themselves. Now, you don't need external systems that know you perfectly. This is absolutely impossible. They just need to know you better than you know yourself and then make better decisions on average than you. And people often make terrible decisions in life, not only in politics, also in what to study and, and, and where to work and whom to marry and things like that. And it's really an empirical question. If it's already beginning to happen today that more and more authority is shifting from humans to algorithms because you learn to trust the algorithm. It starts with things like finding your way around the city. Previously, you rely on your own knowledge and instinct. But gradually, people learn that it's better to listen to your smartphone or to Google Maps. They know the city better than me. Um, and so you lose the ability to find your way around the city. Uh, the same thing happens with looking for information. F for many people today, the only way they know how to look for information is ask Google. And the, three, the first three results is the truth. That's it. And they don't know how to look for information otherwise. This can happen with more and more important things like what to study in college or wh whom to date. You follow your instincts, uh, things don't go very well. You listen to Google, things work better. You learn by experience to listen to Google, and then authority shifts away from you to the algorithm. You provide more and more data to the algorithm. It makes better and better recommendations, so, which turn into um, where, decisions. What, what, does, what does this mean for democracy? What, what, what do we do? We send Alexa to the polling station for us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's again, it's not all bad. It, it could... Because people often make very bad decisions in life, uh, it could improve people's decision in many respects, but it can also lead to terrible consequences, you know, uh, to all kinds of dystopias. And even more, and we don't really have a concept of life which fits with this technology. But your solution is not to sort of get off the technology escalator because you don't think that's realistic that's not realistic i mean we we yeah, can't so just what, stop so, so we need to debate it and find out some solutions is basically yeah there, there are things we can do on the level of regulation there yeah. are things we can do on the level of what kind of technology we develop means technology is never deterministic yeah you we have a, a, a lot of choice about what kind of ai systems we develop for example at present most of the efforts how to develop AI systems that monitor individuals in the service of corporations and governments. But you can develop the opposite kind. You can develop AI systems that monitor uh, governments in the service of individuals, mm. for example, to fight corruption. Mm -hmm. And if the officials in the government or the policemen said, no, 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 we don't want mm. to be monitored all mm. the time, hey, you don't need to ask all the mm. time, why not you? Um, so you can, you can reverse it. And also you can build AI systems that protect individuals against being monitored and manipulated by other AI systems. We have an antivirus program, most people have, to their computer, but we now need it for our brain. 
Like if you have, I mean, you, you now have an AI system that gets to know you and know, oh, this person, they have a weakness for funny cat videos or they already hate immigrants. So we can exploit that. But you can have an AI sidekick that does the same, monitors you and reaches the same conclusion, but then uses it to defend you. Whenever somebody tries to exploit your weakness, your AI sidekick comes to your rescue and say, block uh, the, the fake news story or whatever, and maybe gives you some report like you get on your computer that, uh, you know, we like just somebody found... somebody tried to attack yeah, you. Yeah, somebody tried to attack you, you get this report. Somebody just tried to hack your brain, but I saved you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I mean, what is extraordinary and and so um, thought-provoking about your work is, is, the, is its sweep and its breadth You've got this chapter, which I found particularly compelling in your in your new book, entitled "Arrestingly, Life Isn't a Story." Hmm. Um, and you have this, you, you, there's this uh, passage in it where you say this: the the big question facing humans isn't what is the meaning of life, but rather how do we get out of suffering? Yeah. And now, for a politician, <laughs> that's rather an interesting i mean for a politician and a human if i can put it that way uh, in that order uh, in that order maybe uh that is a rather interesting idea tell, tell a little bit more about that well most most of the times when people ask what is the meaning of life they expect to be told a story uh they think that uh life is is um there is a story to the universe to my life and i just don't know what the story is I don't know what what my role is. And someday in some, some bright flashlight, I will understand the story. I will understand the drama. I will understand my role in it. And this is the, 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 the answer that 99% of people expect when they ask, what is the meaning of life? And for thousands of years, you have all these systems that are producing all kinds of fictional stories that uh, fulfill this need whether it's religious stories or nationalist stories or consumerist stories, that this is the story of the universe and this is your role in the story and this is what you need to do. And in many, many cases, you discover that the deep sources of a lot of suffering in life is all these stories in which people believe. Um, you know, I come from the Middle East, so I know perfectly well that people can kill one each other in their millions because they believe in different stories and they can't agree on what is the, the true story of what is happening in, in the world, what is happening in, in, in reality. I mean, most human conflicts are not about resources. A lot of people think that humans fight for the same reasons that wolves or chimpanzees fight, that we fight over territory, we fight over food, we fight over mates. But this is some cases when it's true. But most wars and revolutions were not really about territory and food. We just marked the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. The First World War was not about food and was not really about territory either. There was enough food in 1914 to feed everybody. The Germans, the, the, the French, the British, there was enough food. And also there was enough territory to build houses and, and, and schools and hospitals for everybody. Um, you know, the, 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 the peace that Europe enjoys today is not because somehow Europeans manufactured more territory and, hey, Germans take some, some new territory and, hey, French take some new territory, now you're happy. No, it's the same territory. They just changed the story. 
the First World War was really about different stories, incompatible stories. And when Europeans managed to come up with a single story, which both the French and the Germans and the British, at least so far, have been happy with, uh, there was peace. And it's the same in, in where I come from, in, in, in Israel. Uh, even though it's a small territory, lots of people there, there is no shortage of food between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. There is even no shortage of territory. But it's just that people can't agree on one story that both sides can, can live with. And, and then is your solution to say we should stop thinking about the stories and start thinking about how do we get out of suffering? Is this a prescription for... No, we, we still need stories because without common stories, you cannot have any functioning society. All human cooperation is based on, on, on having shared stories, whether it's football. I mean, to get 22 people to, to play football, everybody needs to agree on the same rules. If everybody has a different story in their mind of what, it, what football is, there is no game. Um, and similarly, if you look at the financial system, um, they are the best storytellers in the world so far. They, they provided the only story that everybody in the world, world believes, and everybody believes in the, in the dollar, in the euro. Um, and if, if people don't believe, won't believe in the story, then the financial system and the entire economy will collapse. The key thing is always to remember that we created these stories to serve us. So we shouldn't start sacrificing our lives for the sake of the story. As long as you play football with 21 other people and you enjoy it, wonderful. But if you start killing each other because you lost the game, or because some football hooligan, I don't know, did something, then hey, you don't understand what's, what's really happening here. As long as the national story or the economic story is helping people to cooperate more effectively, like I'm willing to pay taxes so that somebody on the, I don't know, on the other side of the country will have better health care because I believe in the, in, in, in the national story that I and this stranger, we have something together and we need to take care of each other. This is wonderful. But when this story becomes vicious, and people start telling me, you need to kill other people, and you need to maybe kill yourself uh, for the greater interests of the nation, then this is a time to, to, to slow down and, and really think what's happening here. And what part does how do we get out of suffering play in this then? I would say that, again, the, the real difficulty is in telling the difference between reality and the story, between reality and fiction. Things like the dollar, things like the laws of football, things like nations, they are stories we created. But they become so powerful that it's very difficult to tell the difference. What is real and what is just a story we created? And the best test of reality and the most important test is the test of suffering. Mm. If you want to know whether an entity is real, whether the hero of the story is a real entity mm. or just a fiction, uh, ask whether this entity can suffer. A currency cannot suffer. A corporation cannot suffer. A nation cannot suffer. Even if a nation loses a war, like Germany lost the First World War, so, so we say Germany suffered a defeat. In the, Germany didn't suffer. Yeah. Individual people yeah. and horses and cows, yeah. they can suffer. But a nation can't suffer. And this is, indicates that this is just a story we created. Uh, and we should all the time stay 
aware and stay focused on this big question of how do we lessen suffering in the world. If this story helps, then wonderful. But if this story becomes a source for more and more suffering in the world, there is something wrong here. And is that your prescription for your own life? How do you reduce suffering? If you think about your work? Uh, I try to. I, I try that, that this will be kind of my guiding light, both in my own personal life and also in my work. It, it doesn't mean that I don't believe any of the stories. We need sure. the stories. Otherwise, we, we can't cooperate. But to always try to maintain this clarity of what is the ultimate level of reality and which beyond all these stories we create and tell ourselves. And in that context, if you don't mind me asking, you're not straight after this interview, but you're shortly going to go into a 60-day meditation. Yes. You're a, you're a two-hour-a-day meditator mm-hmm. in any case, but that is obviously insufficient. <laughs> what time, what, what, when, when are those two hours in your day? Usually when I wake up in the morning, like I, the first thing I do is one hour of meditation. Which is what time, if I may ask? Uh, could be six o'clock, right. could be eight o'clock, could be nine o'clock, right. I mean, I, w- yeah. whenever. Yeah. And then the second hour I do, I, if I'm at home and I have like a regular schedule, then at the end of the workday. What does it give you? Many things. It, 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 it gives me more focus. Without the focus that I gained from training the mind with meditation, I couldn't have written these books. Um, but above all, it, and, and that goes back to this question of stories and, 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 and the reality of suffering, it gives me, to some extent at least, a better ability to tell the difference between reality and fiction. And the 60 days? 60 days, yeah. And what's that going to be like? You've done it before. It's different every time. Yeah. It's very hard work. And very often what comes up is all the things you don't want to know about yourself, all the things you try to repress or run away from, um, and you have to confront them. So it's... There are there are some you know joyful moments, yeah. but most Getting of the out. time is. <laughs> but most day sixty one. Yeah, day, day sixty one is great. Yuval, before you go, we have something on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which sees me mm. installed as some kind of benign dictator. And already in this conversation, we've established that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if, <laughs> I'm whoa. not sure we established that. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> that's the first. That's item the, of every yeah, dictator. Yeah, is exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the story I'd like see, to tell. See, appealing to his prejudices. You see, well, we're in a sort of unstable time in Britain. Let's say that this. I mean, stranger things have happened, but not much stranger. <laughs> Let's say this instability produced suddenly. Jeff yes. was catapulted into power. Mm-hmm. He calls you into Downing Street. I mean, Jeff would be sort of quite surprised. I think. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but would relish the opportunity to serve. Yeah. Um, and he calls you in and says, OK, Yuval, what shall I do? Well, what, s- you, what job do you want and what shall no, I do? To, to solve any of the major problems, it should be obvious you can't do it by yourself, not just by yourself personally, but by ourselves as, as a single nation, a single country. To solve any of our major problems, we need global cooperation, global trust. You don't need to go all the way to a global government, which is an unrealistic vision in the coming decades. But we do need to establish much better global cooperation and trust. At present, we are, of course, doing exactly the opposite. 
But to solve any of the major problems, not just the rise of AI, also climate change, also, of course, nuclear war and nuclear pro- proliferation, without strong global cooperation, we can't solve any of that. Maybe I'll have to become a supreme world leader. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's where we should go with this. Or maybe you want to sort of clone, you, maybe you want to sort of clone Jeff all around the like world. Like Dolly the Sheep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the book is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Yuval Harari, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you great. so much for joining us. It's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, wasn't he fantastic? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's not very upsummable, is it? No, I mean, it's it so, so wide ranging. He's such, it's that combination of being such an interesting thinker on where things are going, as well as having that breadth of knowledge of history. He's quite an incredible man. I mean, I tell you what I really liked is that I sort of feel that sometimes people who are sort of futurologists, I'm not saying he is one, or people who have this long sweep, it can be quite disempowering because you feel like a sort of irrelevant speck in the big sweep of human history. And I suppose that is right, but but I really liked this thing about, you know, it's just such a simple idea as how do you reduce suffering? You know, not you can't abandon stories, national stories, global stories, personal stories, but having it as a sort of goal in life to reduce suffering, it's quite a good way of thinking about the world. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've got thoughts on that fascinating conversation with Yuval Noah Harari, please do get in touch with us uh, at Cheerful Podcast on Twitter uh, and on Instagram, or you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. We read every email, uh, and also, uh, even if we don't necessarily read it out, uh, and also facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Tom Nutgans has emailed in. Uh, he says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I love the podcast and believe that your podcast is why in my fifth decade, 
I've decided to become politically active in a way I've never been. Oh, wow. Isn't that great? I'm currently thinking through what I can do to bring about the economic justice discussed in episode 53, as I feel this is the way the UK society should be going. Possible topics for the show could be sleep and the impact of not getting eight hours, which is Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. He says it is just fascinating. Walker states that the mind and body need to be allowed time to recover and repair every day. This is done when we sleep. And also making it local, how Preston Council put services out to local suppliers to benefit of local incomes rather than international ones. And Tom, I can tell you that we did that actually on episode 29, uh, which featured, among others, Matthew Brown, uh, who's now the leader of uh, Preston uh, Council, um, as a result, I think, of being on our on podcast. The podcast yeah. uh, um, uh, but anyway, thank you so much for your email. Uh, this comes from Per Rolf Hamra, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I am answering your call for Swedish people to write in. Oh, reasons to be Swedish. Uh, I am a Swede living in Stockholm and must agree with you that Sweden is a pretty good country to live and work in, but for some reason, fewer and fewer people seem to agree with me, at least judging by the results of the recent election, where close to one in five chose to vote for an extreme right-stroke populist party. But, you know, 80%... It's a very odd situation because it's been a totally sort of... I mean, it's basically such a close thing between... It's really difficult to form a government. ...the the left and the right, and nobody's able to form a government at the moment. Um, He says, one idea for a reason to be cheerful would be to introduce legislation to declare on receipts if and how much of the cost is subsidised and by whom. I do think sometimes that if people could see where their tax was going... Well, people often have a slightly misplaced view about yeah. where it goes. Yeah. Um, and they underestimate things like the amount of spending on healthcare or pensions. Yeah. Um, so uh, over overestimate the spending on, say, overseas aid. So, so you know, I think maybe there's a sort of case for that. Yeah. Um, uh, good to hear from you, Pat. Yeah. D- uh, Thanks for my care. Two- Thank you so much in Swedish. Uh, right. I thought that, that meant, would you like to go to the legislature with me? <laughs> uh, uh, um, so two uh, spottings of, two sightings, I beg your pardon, of uh, <laughs> what you might call the greater spotted Ed. Uh, one is saw Ed on the Euro, that's me, saw Ed on the Euro style. Hi Ed, following on from your last episode, I was on the way back from Paris on my birthday and you sat next to me in the waiting room to catch the Euro star. You looked busy at the time. I didn't want to disturb you, but wanted to take the chance to say that you're a real inspiration for me and I love the podcast. That's not like you, not to strike up a conversation with a stranger. No, I was sort of, uh, I, I, I remember seeing this chap next to me, but, you know, I, I sort of keep to myself, you know. Uh, as I'm here, a burning question, he goes on. I thought I'd ask you whether you guys would consider a podcast on reforms to political campaign advertising. There is so much discussion about a people's vote, but it seems that significant strengthening of campaign advertising law, both digital and verbal, is necessary to prevent misinformation occurring. It would be really interesting to hear if experts think it is necessary to reform and how they would change it. Yeah, what are the big ideas? I mean, I haven't really there sort of read There are stuff and Facebook on is doing a little bit, but there's lots of other ideas out there, so it's, good. it's a good one. Uh, next one is a dry cleaner encounter. Uh, dear Ed and Jeff, I was recently waiting behind you, Ed, in the dry cleaners. I very much wanted to tell you how much I was enjoying the podcast, but I suffered stage fright and simply smiled awkwardly as you walked past. As a side note, I was surprised how much taller you were in real life than you appear on TV. Listen to your recent episode on QE, Quantitative Easing. I convinced myself to write in, not only so I could relate that rather dull anecdote, but also so I could tell you about my own idea for a better version of QE, which I managed to sneakily hand deliver to George Osborne's office several years ago. I called it rather catchily the Consumer Credit Coupon. Its aim was twofold, create an effective and direct fiscal stimulus, 
and re-engage consumers with shops on our dying high streets. Put simply, every 16 and over would receive a unique coupon of £250, which would only be eligible to be spent in a shop on the high street. Each shop would have to register itself and be eligible only with a high street business address registered with company's house. I estimated that any fraud would be negligible compared to its benefits. Encouragingly, I received a letter back from the Treasury thanking me for my letter and unequivocally dismissing my wild scheme. But I'm sure it's just a matter of time before Philip Hammond digs into the dusty drawer of Treasury policy and we all receive our consumer credit coupon. Interesting. And if you have any spottings of Ed in the wild, you know, as much detail as possible. It's good to know you're in a dry cleaners, but I would have liked to have heard what, what you were picking up, what your small talk was like with the dry cleaner, what you were wearing, what your facial expression was like. You know, so if you do spot Ed in the wild, as, as much detail as possible when you email in. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Cheese puffs. What, I beg your pardon? <laughs> that was what I made in the cooking course. Oh, really? Like yeah. cheesy was but, but actually, no, it's a French thing called gougère, which are like, what do you call that? Pastry? Filo pastry? Choux, pa- Choux pastry? Yeah. But with sort of cheese in them, they're extremely nice. So we made and vegetarian. You can you can make them for me. Yeah, there's something you wanted to mention before we go. So Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, who is the newly elected congresswoman in New York, uh, she staged a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi, the uh, putative Speaker of the House's office, um, over climate change. I mean, I think she didn't quite stage a sit-in, but she went to speak to the people who were sitting in at the office. I thought that was quite a bold move. But are you implying that she heard last week's episode on protest? Completely. She took all the lessons <laughs> uh, on board. Uh, and we should do the thank yous. So, I mean, thanks to Yuval Noah Harari, who was an astonishing guest. Thank you so much. Emma Caution produced our podcast, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed. Uh, compose the music and my voice is going Ed so can you say Emily Power who did the artwork so hopefully my voice will be back by next week he's been a little off he's been Mr Ed and these have been reasons to be cheerful even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.